You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to answer the question, what are the current effective COVID-19 treatments? This is something we get asked about all the time, and so we figured time to address it. So before we jump into today's topic, Andrea, do you want to do a little recap of last week's episode on probiotics? Yeah, so last week we talked about whether or not probiotics were beneficial. Talked a little bit about our gut microbiome, um, which is comprised of upwards of 40 trillion bacterial cells, and they help us regulate metabolism and digest um, foods and synthesize nutrients. And so that's kind of where the logic of probiotic supplementation came to be. But we talked about how these supplements that you take orally, um, the number of microorganisms that they contain are essentially a drop in the bucket. In addition, they don't necessarily mimic the species of bacteria that you should have in your gut or that you need in your gut. And ultimately, there there is no robust data for healthy people to take probiotic supplementation. Uh, we did present some data that demonstrates some moderate benefit for specific medical issues, particularly in young children. But probiotics, just like nutritional supplements, there can be a lack of regulation and and as a result, a lot of variability in the quality of these and the composition of them themselves and ultimately the potential efficacy. So we do encourage you to tune into that episode. Um, we know that it's a very hot topic these days. Yeah, we get asked about probiotics all the time. Um, and, and it was kind of cool to dig into the evidence because I myself, you know, whenever I've taken antibiotics, I've been told to take probiotics to prevent, um, you know, antibiotic-related diarrhea or antibiotic-related yeast infection. And so it was helpful to dig into the literature. Um, and as you just said, the, the, the takeaway was doesn't seem to be all that effective except for some specific conditions and and really mainly for for young children is where we see the highest efficacy. Yeah, and Jess, I think it's important to note there that it's you know, those those specific medical conditions, the probiotics that are administered are being prescribed by a physician and being carefully monitored. They're not things that you're just buying at the local store. Absolutely. And that is a good reminder for everyone that, of course, if you're considering taking probiotics, you should absolutely discuss with your own medical provider who's familiar with your own, you know, your specific medical history and such. So... All right. How about we tell folks our big announcement, Andrea? Yes. Um, which is which is so Andrea and I have kind of been burning the candle at both ends for a long time now. And you know, we absolutely love Unbiased Science and we love the podcast and we we love, of course, our you know, social media presence and developing these infographics, the goal of which is to communicate complex scientific concepts in a way that's understandable for folks who don't necessarily have any scientific training, but it's a lot of work. So we've decided to take um, to take a break this summer from the podcast. So 
we're going to do just that. And today is actually going to be our last episode for, I don't actually know, we didn't start a, uh, <laughs> uh, did we set a date when we're going to resume? I mean, not officially, but I would say since we're taking a summer break and yesterday was the first day of summer, I would assume that you can expect our next episode, which would be episode one of season two, uh, sometime in mid-September. Love it. And we have some really awesome topics that we're going to be tackling and some guest, uh, what are they called? Guest, <laughs> guest, uh, guest podcasters, guest speakers. Yeah, guest scientists. Yeah, I know what to call it, you know? Yeah, guest scientists who are going to help us break down some um, some scientific concepts. So stay tuned. We'll make a, you know, a formal announcement on our page, of course. But if you're listening, uh, then, you know, we wanted you guys to be the first to know. In the meantime, we have... 41 episodes for you to tune into if you're running behind on the pod. So you've got plenty of time to catch up with all of our season one episodes before we launch season two in the fall. And should we update folks a bit about our Patreon? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Lead the way here. (laughs) Sure. So if you guys haven't heard, um, we did recently launch a Patreon, which is a way to support content creators such as podcasters like us. Um, And it offers you three different tiers to control contribute a small monthly fee, um, which help offset the costs that we incur by recording the pod and hosting the pod and editing the pod and things like that. Each of the three tiers offers you access to our private Facebook group, which is actually going to launch officially on July 1st, so the first of the month. Um, And that's going to be a really fun forum where you can directly engage with Jess and myself. We know that we try to respond to messages on social media, but with all the followers it's just impossible to get to every of them, every one of them. So that will give you an opportunity to do that. And then each tier have some additional perks that we're pretty excited about, including live Q&As and, um, you know, roundtable discussions and all sorts of things, as well as some fun Unbiased Science merch. And you know what? I, I know we haven't revealed this yet, Andrea, but I think we should give our listeners uh, a little heads up that we are talking about launching our very own journal club, which is going to be a benefit of the third tier, I believe. Yes. We're obviously we're still finalizing these details because we've just received some really great feedback from folks that we're working on incorporating. And if you do want to help support the pod by joining our Patreon, you can find that at www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. And you can also get there from the link in our bios on Instagram and on Facebook and on our website. So definitely do check it out. Also, just as a reminder, we've got a new partnership with Descent Pins, which makes pins, t-shirts, keychains, and more fun stuff that celebrates science, our very favorite topic. (laughs) And 50% of the profits from their science products are donated to Black Girls Code, DIY Girls, and Chick Tech. How awesome. I love it. I'm a huge fan of Descent Pins. And obviously, if you're like us, you support science. So you can show your support with the Science is Real collection from Descent Pins. I pretty much have all of them, but it includes things like beakers, (laughs) telescopes, and microscopes that show off what you know to be true. Science is real. So get yours today at descentpins.com slash science. D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S 
dot com slash science and you can use discount code unbiased 15 to get 15 percent off your order all righty so let's dig in andrea obviously we've talked a lot about vaccines you know as a as a public health scientist and and obviously andrea is an immunologist we we love to prevent disease when we can but what about people who actually do develop covid19 these could be folks who are unvaccinated as we see the majority of folks who are actually getting sick with covid19 are those who are unvaccinated we do also sometimes see breakthrough cases of course those are rare but we want to talk about the best evidence that's available right now on ways that we can treat the illness. So, Andrew, do you want to give us a little, like, a short history on some of our attempts to repurpose existing medications for, for treatment, which of course, it's going to save some time instead of developing new medications. Yeah, yeah. When we first discovered COVID-19, which is the illness caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2, it's a new virus. It's related to some other viruses, but it's not the same. It's very different from other existing viruses as well in other families. But we have all of these other medications that exist, right? So initially during the early phase of the pandemic, the goal was to do what we call repurposing um, screens. And so this is basically taking existing medications for treatments, and that could be other viral infections, it could be other inflammatory processes, um, but ultimately test them to see if they have any sort of benefit with regard to physical illness, inhibiting the virus ability to reproduce, etc. And so that was really the initial phase of the efforts to find treatment options for people who had COVID-19. And that's a whole separate arm from from the vaccine development arm. So vaccines are preventative, whereas these treatments are going to be therapeutic once someone is physically ill. And so, you know, we, we heard a lot of things coming out of the woodwork initially. You know, we, we were talking about all sorts of different treatments, and we will touch on some of these during this episode. But that was initially the goal. And at the same time, while we were trying to repurpose existing medications, we were also working on developing new medications, specific medications for this particular virus or for this particular type of immune response. So think about Tamiflu, which is an antiviral medication that you take if you get influenza that can help alleviate symptoms and reduce the illness duration for influenza viruses. The goal, the goal is still to try and develop some of these that are specifically targeted for COVID-19. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But ultimately, the goal of these repurposing screens and these clinical trials, as well as the goal of developing new medications, is to target one of two processes. So you're either trying to target the immune response to infection, 
or you're trying to target the virus itself. So trying to target the virus itself, you're going to be looking for treatments or medications that inhibit the virus's ability to actually interact with our cells and bind that ACE2 receptor to inhibit the ability of the virus to replicate. So that could be things that it needs in order to synthesize new copies of its genome or new proteins or things like that. Or it could be other things involved in, say, packaging of the virus. So the virus has many steps that it needs to, you know, incorporate in order to actually release new baby viruses after it infects our cells. So there are all sorts of different steps along the way that we could try and interfere with that. On the other side, we know that a lot of the symptoms of illness are related to the virus itself and the damage it causes to our bodies, but it's also related to how our immune system recognizes that foreign invader and how it causes an inflammatory response. So the other side of these potential therapeutic options are looking at ways to what we call modulate the immune response. So Particularly severe cases of COVID-19 are associated with this very profound inflammatory response that we call cytokine storm, which is basically when your immune system is kind of on high alert, a little bit of an overreaction. You have all of these chemicals that are being produced and it creates inflammatory processes in our cardiovascular system, in our um, respiratory system that can lead to things like the COVID-associated pneumonias and, and all these sorts of processes. So other types of treatments are aimed at alleviating or reducing or adjusting the severity or the intensity of the immune response by blocking the production of some of these inflammatory chemicals or by reducing the robustness of the immune activation that we see in the case of particularly severely ill people. And so ultimately, those are kind of the big goals. And, you know, the virus is pretty insidious. And so it's been quite a bit of a challenge um, to this point. So let's let's maybe skip to the punchline here mm-hmm. and then fill in some details. So as of now, no therapy has been proven to be beneficial in outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are not at high risk for disease progression. So the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel or I guess we'll call it the panel moving forward, Um, they recommend providing supportive care and symptomatic management to outpatients with COVID-19. And of course, steps should also be taken to reduce the risk of transmission to others. Oh, I was going to say, Jess, so basically, you know, people that are generally considered healthy with no pre-existing conditions who have mild to moderate COVID-19, you know, basically they're still recommended to stay home, take symptom alleviation medications like acetaminophen, and then keep an eye on your symptoms. And, you know, if they don't progress, then you just continue to stay home and, and, um, you know, manage those symptoms. So for more severe illness, there there are some FDA-approved treatments, right? Well, there's so, one FDA-approved treatment, sorry, and there are some that are emergency use authorized. Okay, well, the winner, the one that we're going to talk about right now is remdesivir. So remdesivir is FDA approved for adults and some children that require hospitalization. So Andrea, I know you're going to tell us how it works, but I just wanted to specify what the FDA approval is for. So um, remdesivir was approved by the FDA for the treatment of COVID in hospitalized adult 
and pediatric patients over the age of 12 years um, and also weighing over 40 kilograms. And it is also available through an FDA EUA, an emergency use authorization, for the treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized pediatric patients who don't meet that, that weight threshold or who, who are younger than 12 years. But it has to be administered in a hospital or a healthcare setting that can provide a similar level of care um, to an inpatient hospital. So do you want to tell us a little bit? Yeah. So remdesivir is uh, a molecule that basically what it does is it, it's a mimic of a particular molecule that the virus needs in order to reproduce its, its genome, essentially. So basically what this compound does, this remdesivir compound, is it actually inhibits an enzyme that the virus requires in order to replicate more RNA. So this is an RNA virus, meaning its genome is made up of RNA molecules, which is different than humans, where our genome is made up of DNA molecules. But remdesivir basically inhibits the replication of new baby virus RNAs by inhibiting an enzyme that's required in order to synthesize that. And so what that does in the context of SARS-CoV-2 is it can, in theory, inhibit the proliferation or the reproduction of virus once you're infected with it. And we've seen that both in vitro, so that's in cell culture, this has activity against SARS-CoV-2, remdesivir, in a rhesus macaque model, so these are non-human primate animal models, um, remdesivir treatment actually led to lower viral levels. So that suggests that, yes, this compound is, in fact, inhibiting viral replication. It also led to less lung damage in, in the lungs of infected monkeys that received remdesivir versus those that didn't. And there's an additional mechanism that's proposed that it actually seems remdesivir may also be involved in a, a particular protein that's involved in the immune response or the host defense as well. So it seems to be that in addition to directly interacting with the viral replication phase, this molecule may also help to, as we said, modulate that immune response so that you have less virus, lower inflammation, and potentially less tissue damage as a result of infection. So talk about good timing. Just today, positive outcomes based on large real-world evidence studies have been shared on remdesivir. So I thought maybe we could share some of those findings. Please, Um, yes. (laughs) Please, please. So there were um, three retrospective studies of the real-world treatment of patients that were hospitalized with COVID-19. It was actually a sample of just under 100,000 patients added to the body of mortality and hospital discharge data for patients treated with remdesivir. So the findings were presented at the World Microbe Forum this week, and all three of the real-world analyses observed that in the overall patient populations, patients who received remdesivir treatment had significantly lower risk for mortality compared with matched controls. A reduction in mortality was observed across a spectrum of baseline oxygen requirements. The results were consistently observed at different timeframes over the course of the pandemic and across geographies. Two of the studies also observed that patients who received remdesivir had a significantly increased likelihood of discharge from the hospital by day 28. 
So these are some great findings. You have a big sample, you know, more and more real world evidence showing that remdesivir does seem to uh, reduce mortality and increase the likelihood of discharge by day 28 in people who are hospitalized with COVID-19. So, Andrea, anything to add to remdesivir before we move on to monoclonal antibody treatments, which have also received quite a bit of attention? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I think we did a really good job of summarizing. Obviously, you know, physicians are continually updated about these approved and authorized treatments. But, you know, we hope that these summaries, these high-level summaries, give you a scope of what's going on behind the scenes. Beautifully said. Okay, Andrea, do you want to talk about monoclonal antibody treatments? Sure. So monoclonal antibody treatments are basically a way of mimicking the immune response that we would generate after infection in order to help alleviate symptoms. So these particular treatments what happens is these antibodies are antibodies that have been created in a lab in response to the virus or what we call the viral antigen. And so in the case of most of these, these are that spike protein because that's the thing that our immune system recognizes. That's the part of the virus that initially interacts with our cells and helps it enter and infect ourselves using that lock and key mechanism. And so what these monoclonal antibodies are is they're basically similar to the antibodies that you would produce if you were infected or if you were vaccinated, but you're administered them when you're ill to help kind of boost your immune response, essentially, um, artificially, to help you combat illness. And so there's several that have um, received emergency use authorization for mild or moderate COVID-19 in adult and pediatric patients over 88 pounds. And of course, there are specific criteria for each of these. I'm not going to go too much into them. We've heard quite a bit about them. So we have uh, a recent one from GSK. We have the Regeneron. It's actually a two monoclonal antibody combo, and that's called the REGN-CoV, so Regeneron-CoV. And then we also have a two monoclonal antibody combo from Eli Lilly. And the big thing to understand is monoclonal antibodies are well, they're they're called monoclonal because they are the same identical structure in the entire kind of population of antibodies. And this is different from the type of response that a person mounts either to vaccination or to infection, which is called a polyclonal response. And so what that means is that as we see more variants arise, which actually have slight changes in the spike protein, some of these monoclonal antibodies, because they're a specific structure, one structure, they may not be quite as effective. And that really underscores the importance, of course, of getting people vaccinated. But it's also a caveat where many medical providers are actually trying to identify what variant of the virus a person is infected with before administering potential monoclonal antibody treatments. Now, what we've seen, though, is that these monoclonal antibody treatments do seem to reduce illness severity, reduce illness duration, and also reduce the likelihood of these mild or moderate COVID-19 cases in progressing to severe COVID-19, COVID-19 requiring hospitalization, COVID-19 requiring mechanical ventilation, and so on and so forth. 
So what these do is they essentially augment what your immune system is already doing in the context of infection by adding some extra helping antibodies in order for your immune system to essentially catch up and help you balance out that fight that you're waging inside your body with the virus. So what's the TLDR? TLDR, they show some promise in alleviating symptoms and reducing illness duration. A lot of people don't seem to know that they are available. So if you do have mild or moderate COVID-19, it is certainly something to discuss with your physician about adding to your treatment regimen. All right, so there are a couple of other um, treatments that are authorized for patients with COVID-19. So one is called baricitinib. And this is also made by Eli Lilly. And this is a treatment that actually inhibits a pathway that's involved in the immune response. And I'm not going to get too much into the nitty gritty. But ultimately, this has actually been authorized only in combination with remdesivir. So the treatment that's authorized is baricitinib plus remdesivir. And the benefits of baricitinib were administered or were monitored using a randomized placebo-controlled trial called Cove Barrier. And this included over 1,500 hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And these were patients who had evidence of COVID-associated pneumonia and um, an increase in inflammatory markers. So that means that you have a very pronounced immune response and you have a lot of inflammation going on. And... Particular patients were excluded based on certain criteria that I won't go into right now. But ultimately, patients were randomized, either receive baricitinib or continue with the the standard of care across whichever hospital site they happen to be in. This was a multinational study. And so what they were looking at were the proportion of patients who progressed poorly, so meaning they had worse progression, so they had to be moved from their current state to high-flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, or invasive ventilation, as well as death by day 28. And so what they found was that baricitinib treatment reduced the proportion of patients who progressed to more severe COVID or death compared to placebo. And they also found a 38.2% reduction in mortality when you compare the group that was treated with baricitinib versus the placebo group. Now, there the actual mortality rate was 8.1% versus 13.1% in the baricitinib group versus the placebo arm. So that is um, significant. And we did notice that when you actually included the remdesivir as part of baseline treatment, there was a slight reduction in mortality compared to the group receiving remdesivir and baricitinib, but that was not substantially different. So basically, baricitinib was a authorized for use to alleviate symptoms in, I guess we can call this moderate to severe COVID um, because these are hospitalized patients with COVID-associated pneumonia, but they weren't currently receiving mechanical ventilation. So baricitinib in combination with remdesivir is authorized for treatment in those types of patients. And again, that would be something that your physician would be aware of and would consider. Anything to add about that one, Jess? Uh, nope, I don't. And <laughs> one I more, yes. One more here that I can't pronounce that you Yeah, so the other one, so <laughs> so the last one, and, and these two, baricitinib that I just mentioned, and the next one, which is called toslazumab, these 
also are treatments that affect the immune response. So it's important to keep in mind. And baricitinib, as I mentioned, is is a protein inhibitor. It's actually called a Janus kinase inhibitor. You don't need to know what that is, but it actually is used for treatment of autoimmune disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis. So it does have some implications in being able to alleviate some of that pronounced inflammation that you see in something like an autoimmune condition. So tocilizumab is another what we call immunomodulatory drug. And what this does is it actually inhibits the production and the effect of a cytokine called IL-6 or interleukin-6. And this has been implicated in the treatment of cancer and other sorts of medical issues. So this is not completely out of the blue. This is also used to treat rheumatoid arthritis as well as juvenile idiopathic arthritis, so other sorts of inflammatory diseases. So that's, again, the logic behind repurposing and testing this. So tocilizumab has been used for a variety of recent studies, including randomized controlled trials and cohort studies, and they're all seeking to assess the efficacy of tocilizumab for treatment of COVID-19. And ultimately, there are mixed data to suggest it may be effective. Currently, tocilizumab is only recommended for use with dexamethasone for the treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients on high-flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, and only if they have evidence of progressing to more severe illness or if they have, as I mentioned with baricitinib, increased inflammatory markers. Unfortunately, there is not a pattern to suggest which patients in this group that that are hospitalized with with oxygen supplementation would actually benefit from tocilizumab to dexamethasone. So there's there's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of clinician recommendations. So some would recommend it um, on the NIH clinical panel, some would not. And again, that's going to be a little bit of a case-by-case situation. There are no evidence to suggest or to recommend the treatment of tocilizumab in combination with other treatments aside from dexamethasone, and they actually recommend against the use of this with other immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory treatments like baricitinib because they both suppress the immune system, it might make you more prone for opportunistic infections because we know we want a balance of the immune response. We don't want too much immune response. We don't want too little immune response. So again, it's, it's trying to find this happy balance to alleviate the symptoms, but not to um, make you at risk for potential hospital-acquired other infections. Okay, so you mentioned mm-hmm. dexamethasone, and I think maybe now's a good time to, to dig into that since that's another um, yes. potential treatment option that's been discussed and studied. Uh, we also have to mention that Andrea abbreviates <laughs> it as Dexy, which makes me think of Rexy, you're so sexy. I hope that someone listening has seen <laughs> Empire Records and knows what the heck I'm talking about, but okay. So dexamethasone is a cortical steroid used in a wide range of conditions for its anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressant effects. So some scientists have hypothesized that glucocorticoids may modulate inflammation-mediated lung injury and thereby reduce progression to respiratory failure and death. And they think that this you know, could be very relevant to COVID-19 given the, the lung injuries uh, that we see exactly. for severe cases. So the, the New England Journal of Medicine, they published a study in late February of this year, 
And so I wanted to talk a little bit about those findings. So this was a controlled open-label trial comparing a range of possible treatments in patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. So what they did was they randomly assigned patients to receive oral or intravenous dexamethasone. It was a dose of uh, six milligrams once daily for up to 10 days or to receive usual care alone. And the primary outcome of interest was 28-day mortality. In terms of sample size, there was a total of 2,104 patients uh, that were assigned to receive the dexamethasone, and then 4,321 received usual care. So what did they find? Um, In patients hospitalized with COVID-19, the use of dexamethasone resulted in lower 28-day mortality among those who were receiving either invasive mechanical ventilation or oxygen alone at randomization. However, they did not find any difference among those receiving no respiratory support. So what does this mean? Let's just summarize. This means that dexamethasone has been found to improve survival in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who require supplemental oxygen. And the greatest benefit is observed in patients who require mechanical ventilation. So we're talking about people who are really very, very sick. The use of dexamethasone is recommended in the hospital setting, again, um, for critically ill patients, especially those. And Jess, I think this is an important point. So, you know, we've talked about things that can, um, you know, modulate the immune response and alleviate some of this excessive inflammation that's associated with very severe COVID-19, particularly pneumonia. And the monoclonal antibodies, while effective, are quite costly, even if you have insurance. Whereas dexamethasone, which is a, a broad spectrum or, a, you know, kind of a generic steroid that leads to kind of suppression of immune responses very broadly is quite affordable and quite accessible. So, you know, the fact that it can improve survival, particularly in these groups that are at highest risk for death due to COVID, is is encouraging. Of course, we'd like better better data and more effective treatments and more options, but I think, you know, I remember reading this initial paper and, and it was very encouraging data. Totally agree. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I just want to mention that there are quite a few other treatments that are in various phases of clinical trial or have been mentioned in the media or amongst chatter on social media. And I do want to be clear that there are a a pretty comprehensive list of treatments that the NIH specifically recommends against the use of due to potential side effects or potential complications. Yes, we're still testing things. There are still clinical trials ongoing, but but it's not a situation where you should just, you know, throw everything at the wall and just see what sticks. Mm-hmm. That is a very important point to make. Um, and that was, uh, that came out from the, the NIH, right? They, they've come out. Correct. Okay. All right. 
Yeah, so the NIH have this very comprehensive set of clinical treatment guidelines, and a lot of the data we are presenting today come from there. Um, and this, these guidelines, it's it's over 300 pages, but it's for clinicians, um, so they can kind of triage their COVID patients and identify which treatment options are viable, which ones have data that support the efficacy, and so on and so forth. All right. We've got to talk about nutritional supplements. <laughs> um, there, many people um, argue with us and tell us that vitamin C, <laughs> vitamin D, and zinc are treatments for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Before we even get into this, we have to remind people that we did a previous episode on this topic all about micronutrients and how they are important for immune function. Um, But really, there's no real need to take supplements unless you're deficient in any of these particular um, nutrients. Now, Andrea, you're the microbiologist and immunologist. Do you want to just like (laughs) kind of set the stage here for for how they work for you know immune function and all that. Just yeah, like that. absolutely. So so you know there are there are a variety of essential micronutrients that we typically get from either our environment or diet um, that are important in ensuring that our immune system functions properly. And you know definitely listen to the spilling the immunity on supplements episode because we do a lot more of a thorough discussion there. But ultimately they participate in ensuring that our immune cells can conduct their basic metabolic processes, that they can become activated properly, that they can recognize, you know, foreign invaders and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that kind of paves the the logic for why excess supplementation might be beneficial, but ultimately you can't pump up your immune system. It's either going to be functioning or it's not going to be functioning. And as these are micronutrients, you don't need a ton of them in order to have a properly functioning immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are certainly some some disparities in terms of the data we know about how they're involved in immune system function versus the information that often circulates on social media suggesting that nutritional supplements are a substitute for vaccinations or for, you know, other preventative measures. So, okay, let's, again, you know, skip to the, uh, to the punchline here. So there are insufficient data for the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel to recommend either for or against the use of vitamin C and vitamin D for the treatment of COVID-19. The same goes for zinc, but they take it a step mm-hmm. further to recommend against using zinc supplementation above the recommended dietary allowance because I guess some folks have been like loading up on zinc thinking that that was somehow either going to prevent or or cure covid on top of that there are complications and side effects associated with overdosing on any of these good things um you know zinc overdose can lead to nausea and vomiting blood in the stool diarrhea um headaches difficulty breathing um vitamin c and vitamin d can also lead to very pronounced overdose symptoms as well so you know again taking excessive amounts of any of these things not only are they not going to cure you but they could be detrimental to your health 
So the other thing we want to caution you guys against is that there are a lot of people making a lot of money, (laughs) Um, supplement sellers, people who are selling these pills, you know, these, um, these vitamins and nutrients and whatever, they're, they're selling them as supplements and they're, and they're trying to make a lot of money off of these claims. So we want to caution against believing everything you read. I think there was some viral video, Andrew, I can't even keep track. I, I don't know who it was, but I think it was a, like a dermatologist who was, the long story short is that he was selling a vitamin D supplement. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess it's not all that surprising that he was talking about this evidence that really does not exist so this is not just the case for COVID-19 right these these um peddlers of supplements they crop up whenever there's a new infectious disease outbreak they're kind of always circulating they throw in buzzwords like immune boosting and things like that and again listen to that episode um but ultimately you can't pump up your immune system, um, and and a lot of these supplements are not even vetted for quality or containing what they actually are advertising to contain. So I think what also seemed to complicate this is at some point, Dr. Fauci, I think in an interview or something, made mention of the fact that he takes vitamin D supplements, and I think that that <laughs> was somehow, you know, it, it turned into this whole, well, Dr. Fauci is recommending vitamin D for COVID. So, all right, let, let's talk about, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about vitamin D in particular. This is the yeah. one that I personally hear a lot about. Yes. Um, so there was a recent report written for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So they're actually updating their recommendations on vitamin D um, deficiency screening. But basically, you know, despite these claims made by these supplement sellers, conclusions about vitamin D blood levels, connection to a host of diseases, including COVID-19, cannot be determined because of mixed or sparse evidence. Um, so basically in this report, they they talk about how the, the evidence that's being cited is really mixed and sparse. So just to mention a few different things here. So there was a study of 77 frail elderly patients hospitalized with COVID in France, um, and they concluded that vitamin D supplements taken regularly during the year before a COVID-19 diagnosis was associated with less severe disease and better survival than taking no vitamin D or receiving supplementation. Um, And then there was also a pilot randomized clinical trial of 76 patients from Spain that found that treatment with high-dose vitamin D significantly reduced the risk of ICU admission. However, these were very, very small studies with many limitations. On the other hand, other studies have shown, you know, no effect. So there was this other study in northern Italy um, conducted in a hospital there that found no association between vitamin D and COVID-19. Let's see. There was a review article um, that the, the researcher said in Italy, they concluded that poor vitamin D status appears to be linked to an increased risk of, of um, SARS-CoV-2 infection, but then these other factors such as age, sex, and comorbidities play a much more important role in disease severity and mortality. So basically, there are these other confounding variables that maybe these smaller studies are not controlling for. 
Um, I could go on and on, but long story short, any any study that seemed to find some sort of a positive association, they were very small and did not adequately control for confounders. Yeah, and I think just, you know, a big takeaway is, again, correlation does not equal causation. A lot of these are observational and they're not actually looking at the potential mechanism of vitamin D or actually looking into how that potential supplement, you know, would affect the disease state or the susceptibility to infection. And that ultimately is is very consistent with the research about vitamins and supplements throughout history, ultimately. Absolutely. And just one last thing I want to add here. I'm sorry if I'm rambling on, but um, actually, I, I loved how... I love how this was phrased, and we'll link to this, but there was a, a letter to the editor of the British Journal of Nutrition that basically said some of the evidence about vitamin D in COVID-19 doesn't pass the smell test. So, for example, they cited this, um, this retrospective study uh, done in Indonesia that linked low vitamin D levels to higher risk of dying from COVID. And, you know, the publication had not been peer-reviewed, but even still, of course, it was retreat, retweeted thousands of times and mm-hmm. made headlines and major news um, news outlets. Not only that, they couldn't actually track down the authors of the study, didn't mention names or number of hospitals involved. Um, also, vitamin D levels aren't routinely checked in Indonesia, so we don't really know how they would have actually acquired that information. Um, there was also just one more thing. I'm sorry. There was a study in mid-October. Um, well, not a study. Excuse me. In mid-October, the editors of PLOS One issued an expression of concern about a vitamin D study that they published three weeks earlier. And that study claimed that among patients hospitalized with COVID, those with vitamin D levels um, that were low were twice as likely to die than others. However, um, while they said that there were no, um, you know, they, they, they made a, an author's declaration of no competing interests, it came out that one of the authors does have a competing interest, including consulting um, and industry funding and even an authorship of a, of a book called The Vitamin D Solution. Huh. So lots of flaws with some of the evidence that's out there. Yeah, and I think the big takeaway again, Jess, is is you know everything that you access online is not necessarily credible, and and unfortunately, you know, in the example you use with the Indonesia study, false information travels very quickly, um, becomes very sensationalized, and we've seen kind of the detrimental effects of that throughout this pandemic. The last hey. micronutrient I think we'll very quickly touch on is, is zinc, and as Jess already mentioned, there's just simply no data to recommend the use of that for the treatment of COVID-19. And as we already just mentioned, there are some potential harmful side effects of overdosing on zinc supplementation. Um, so as of right now, the TLDR for supplements is there are no data to suggest that they are effective in treating COVID-19 or preventing infection. All right, Andrea, I think there's an oral antiviral you wanted to talk about. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, I just really want to underscore that, you know, we talked a lot about repurposing medications that exist for other things. Um, There are still over 3,000 clinical trials for interventionals for COVID-19 that are ongoing, one of which is the antiviral compound developed by Merck um, 
in combination with Ridgeback Therapeutics called Molnupiravir. And this is an oral antiviral. Um, It is proceeding into phase three clinical trials, but um, that is specifically for outpatients, so people that are not hospitalized. The phase two trial in hospitalized patients um, did not demonstrate a high amount of efficacy in for clinical benefit for hospitalized patients. Um, so they're actually abandoning that arm of the phase three trial. So this phase three will continue, um, but only in the context of people who are not hospitalized with COVID-19, so mild or moderate illness. Um, This treatment does, in fact, inhibit the replication of the virus, and the treatment benefit was most pronounced in patients that were starting treatment within five days of symptom onset. Um, and that is really why it's it's uh, hypothesized that it's most effective in outpatients. And of course, during that phase two portion, the 800 milligram dose had the, the most beneficial antiviral effect. So again, we're keeping our eyes on these newly developed vac- um, therapeutic options, but because these are really all starting from scratch, um, they still have a ways to go in the clinical trial space. All right, we've got to talk. Oh, we've got to talk about. We've got to talk about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. (laughs) Let's start with ivermectin. Um, Ivermectin is a broad-spectrum anti-parasitic agent. It's included in the World Health Organization's Essential Medicines List. Um, It's also approved by the FDA for several parasitic diseases. Um, it's also used in the treatment of a couple of things I can't pronounce. Um, Andrea, I don't know. Do you know how to pronounce these two things? <laughs> yes, strongyloidiasis, no? which is a parasitic infection called by, caused by strongyloides, and onchocerciasis, which is it causes river blindness, which again is another parasitic infection. It's also used to treat scabies. Um, it's being evaluated by the FDA for its potential to reduce the rate of malaria transmission. Yeah, so malaria is also a parasite. Again, they're not the same as viruses. Mm-hmm. Very important <laughs> distinction. Um, <laughs> so for these specific indications, ivermectin has been widely used and is generally well tolerated. But as Andrea is making clear, it is not approved by the FDA for the treatment of any viral infection. So Andrea, I was reading some stuff. You could probably make a lot more sense of, um, you know, the in vitro studies that I guess showed some promise yes. for uh, the use of ivermectin. Yeah, yeah. so they... They, the logic is, or, or the kind of fundamental research um, in vitro, which is in cell culture in a petri dish, um, it suggests that ivermectin may be able to inhibit some of these proteins that are involved in host cells, which might be um, a pathway that viruses can hijack to enhance or improve their infection process um, because it can ultimately suppress the host antiviral response. Um, Now, it's important to note that a couple of the proteins that are involved are what we call nuclear transport proteins. So these would be things that would facilitate transport of a virus into the nucleus. Um, This particular virus does not enter the nucleus. So, you know, again, the, the logic, there's a little bit of a disconnect and the mechanism of action may not actually be true. Um, in the context of SARS-CoV-2, 
it's thought that ivermectin may interfere with the ability of the virus to actually attach its spike protein to human cells. Um, but again, there are limited data to to suggest that even in vitro. Okay, so it sounds like maybe something there with the in vitro, although you're saying not super clear. Um, but we know that there, um, the, the ah, excuse me, no clinical trials have reported a clinical benefit for ivermectin in patients with these viruses, right? Um, and some studies of ivermectin have reported potential anti-inflammatory uh, properties, which have been postulated to be beneficial in people with COVID. But then you have these observational cohorts and clinical trials that have evaluated the use of ivermectin, and they've been very you know mixed results and really weak, weak evidence to mm-hmm. support its use. Did I butcher that? Or no, no. I mean, I think okay. you know. It's 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 really it's really a mixed bag, and that's ultimately why the NIH um, panel state there are insufficient data to recommend you know either for or against the use of ivermectin. Um, There are continued clinical trials that are ongoing, but we need to have robust. Uh, well-powered, well-designed, and well-conducted clinical trials. Um, a lot of the data that are being published, whether they're peer-reviewed or preprints, um, they're very limited. They have small sample sizes. They're, you know, they're not necessarily representative of what would be conducted in in a, a more robust trial. Well, and also there have been some. There's been some evidence that um, you know the use of ivermectin ivermectin orally in in any kind of an outpatient setting requires very strict and well-defined guidelines because overdosing is associated with loss of function, right? And there could be really adverse reactions to ivermectin if not taken properly. Um, So that's another um, Mm -hmm. concern. So what I think is confusing for folks, and you just alluded to it, there have been some very small studies that have shown some benefit. So I'll mention just one. There was a trial out of, um, well, it was was published in the International Journal of Infectious Disease. Uh, There were 72 hospitalized patients in Bangladesh. And basically what they found was that uh, virological clearance was early in the five-day ivermectin treatment arm when compared to the placebo group. Uh, But they did not find this, and I guess they had an arm that combined ivermectin and doxycycline. So, um, you know, that showed some promise, but again, that was a very, Mm -hmm. very small trial. So really, we need larger trials to confirm, you know, these preliminary findings, which Mm -hmm. are very mixed. Um, The other thing I really want to call folks' attention to, and we'll put this up on our show notes, the NIH has a fantastic table that summarizes the latest evidence on ivermectin. And they break it down. For each study, they explain why you have to take the results with a grain of salt. You know, they'll talk about... Um, threats to the validity of the studies and certain biases, so small sample size or improperly constructed comparison groups or didn't control for confounding variables. And so that is a really excellent summary. Ultimately, the World Health Organization has said that the current evidence on the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19 is inconclusive. The drug should only be used within clinical trials. 
Um, right now, there's a group, an independent international panel of experts. It includes clinical care experts in multiple specialties. It also includes ethicists and patient partners. They are reviewing pool data from 16 randomized controlled trials with over uh, 2,400 people uh, in patients and outpatient settings. These are people with COVID-19. And based on their review, which is still ongoing, they determine that the evidence on whether ivermectin reduces mortality, um, need for mechanical ventilation or hospital admission, as well as time to clinical improvement is very low certainty due to small sizes and methodological limitations of available trial data so there you have it the the evidence is just not there for ivermectin despite what many people are saying they're usually citing these very small studies that have many threats to validity um all right andrea do you want to should we talk about hydroxy <laughs> yeah i mean i think now? i think a lot of Briefly. the hullabaloo <laughs> i haven't gotten to use that word in a long time um around around hydroxychloroquine has kind of uh, tapered um, since it got quite a bit of attention last year. Um, But hydroxychloroquine is a prescription medication. It is an antiparasitic that's used to treat malaria. It's also used to treat certain autoimmune disorders such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And it gained a lot of attention last year when early reports, again, suggested that it could be repurposed to possibly benefit COVID-19 patients. And again, this was based on very preliminary data in vitro studies. So those are in Petri dishes in, in cell culture and in small studies amongst COVID-19 patients. And again, as just just mentioned with regard to the ivermectin, methodological limitations, lack of control groups, and so on and so forth. So in April 2020, NIH launched a clinical trial at 34 hospitals across the country to test the potential benefits of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 patients. And this was funded by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. So by June, so that was two months and change, this study was halted because the interim results showed no benefit um, for COVID-19 patients. They didn't show any detriment, but they showed that there were no improved patient outcomes. Um, and so there was previously an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. And in June, the FDA revoked that because, uh, there was a lack of benefits. Um, and in some people it actually can lead to things like arrhythmia and other cardiovascular problems. So, Yes, hydroxychloroquine got a lot of attention. It initially had an EUA. That was revoked, um, and and there have been no, no proven benefits for COVID-19 patients with treatment with hydroxychloroquine. And just to add to that, there was another randomized controlled trial of almost 700 adult um, COVID outpatients in Brazil that also tested hydroxychloroquine. Um, the study was published in April in JAMA Network Open, and they actually had to stop the trial for the same reasons that Andrea just mentioned in the other study. Um, interim analysis showed, you know, that the, it was there was treatment futility. There was no point. They weren't seeing any difference. Um, and this study was part of the together trial to evaluate the effectiveness of repurposed therapies in high-risk, non-hospitalized adult COVID patients. So again, the evidence is just not there. I'm really hoping we could put this one to to rest soon. (laughs) 
All right. We covered a lot of ground here, Andrea. I know. Um, I'm kind of sad that we are, well, I don't know. It's bittersweet that we're taking the summer off. We really do need the break, guys, but we're going to miss this. We really enjoy this, but we promise that we're going to come back strong in the fall. Yeah. So, you know, to summarize, there are a few promising treatments for particular patient groups that have COVID-19. But our best defense is a good offense, so you want to get those vaccines. So preventing illness is always easier than treating illness once it arises. Um, But thank you for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two and enjoyed our very last episode of season one. And if you like our pod, please make sure to share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to check out our Patreon if you want to join our close-knit community of SciComm. Um, please also check our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com where you can see our show notes. You can listen to all of our past 41 episodes. You can pick yourself up some Unbiased Science merch, or you could even leave us a donation. Um, thank you for joining us for the first season of the Unbiased Science podcast. We hope you have a wonderful summer. As just mentioned, we will be taking a break from the pod itself until September, but make sure to catch up on all the 41 episodes we've released and we will continue to be providing updates on COVID-19 and other science topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a